Welcome to Production Value Matters, the business event podcast, brought to you by Burn Production Services. Here, we explore the different ways business events can bring value to your organization, the latest technological advances in the event space, as well as providing you with actionable strategies to make a business event a success. Let's create an exceptional event experience. Welcome to another episode of the Production Value Matters podcast, the business event podcast. Today, I'm really thrilled to have Matt Sweet with us. Matt is a currently the manager of events and employee engagement at the Perseus Group. With a vibrant career of over 15 years in the event planning realm, Matt has honed his distinctive approach to crafting emotionally resonant events. His journey has seen him at the helm of various event-centric roles, co-founding the Typecast Dance Company to his impactful tenure at Bansai and now with the Perseus Group. Matt's philosophy of being a feelings and colors guy drives his narrative focus event design, aligning him human experience with corporate objectives. Welcome, Matt. Awesome. Thank you for having me. It's weird hearing someone else say feelings and color guy about me because like, that's just a joke I tell about myself. I think that's a really great descriptor of all the conversations you and I have had in the past. I would personify you as a feelings and color guy. Feelings and color. I mean, it just kind of makes sense for me because... At the end of the day, I tend to believe there's sort of two types of event planners. There's the ones with the clipboard at the back of the room, and there's the one on the stage being loud, and I am definitely that second one. <laughs> For those of you who are only listening to this as a podcast, you just did jazz hands, and that is very sweet. So can you explain how that personal philosophy was cultivated over the, your career in event planning? And like, what pivotal experiences shaped that unique approach? So I started my career in the arts. I went to school for sort of theater management. I ended up kind of landing in the professional dance universe for a number of years. That's where I co-founded the Typecast Dance Company. But I also produced outside of that at various organizations. The big one, of course, being the Arts Umbrella of Ontario. Or the, what I just called it the wrong thing. The Dance Umbrella of Ontario. Wow, I have not been there in a while. But essentially, at that time, it was sort of, I wanted to produce these works that sort of were emotionally resonant. And at that time in Toronto in particular, a lot of the artists were doing a lot more kind of what I would call navel gazing, where it's like, you're welcoming an audience into a room to watch you work through your personal demons, but it's not necessarily connecting with them. That is not what we did at Typecast Dance Company, just to be clear. <laughs> but that's kind of, I would say, where the sort of dissatisfaction that the art started building for me, it was kind of like, if I'm going to dedicate my life to sort of being broke all the time, because I work in the arts, and I'm not even going to produce work that kind of makes me feel good, like, what am I doing here? So it was about finding a path outwards and thinking about well, what are the transferable skills in that regard. And I was thinking a lot about kind of what are the core things from the arts that I want to take forward into what my career is going to look like. And that kind of comes back to this idea of having an understanding of the artistic process, what it's like to put yourself on the line and knowing there's value in that, and also this exploration of what really engages an audience. And I would say those are the things I took from that part of my career and moving forward. And from there, I ended up at, say, Corinmore, which is a big event design firm in Toronto. And 
I got there right around the time that sort of a Canadian legend, Leslie Bell, was retiring. So it was kind of an interesting time to be at Decor more because figuring out who's the boss when the big boss has retired is always a wild time to be at any company. And I think one of the things that came out of that experience specifically for me is on my first week, I was at a meeting. We were talking about this big project we were working on. Leslie happened to be in that room. And I was just transferred industries. I didn't know nothing about corporate events. I am faking it as hard as I can. I am saying nothing in this meeting of all of these people. We're at the end of it. I haven't spoken. And Leslie looks at me, points at me and says, Matt, you haven't spoken this whole meeting. And I want to know what you're thinking about. And I was like, oh, Leslie, thank you. I'm new and I don't know. And I get snapped at the time. I'm here to listen. And she was like, nope, I pay you for your brain. And I want to hear what's in it. And that moment, in the years that followed, did Leslie and I agree on everything? No, we did not. <laughs> but that moment, I think, is something that has translated across my career from then. Because everywhere I go, it's my brain is why I'm in this room. And if you don't like what I have to say, that's cool. But that's a you problem, not a me problem. And I really try to approach everything I do from a place of honesty and that moment, I think, was critical in being like, yeah, I'm going to show up and I'm going to tell you things and maybe you don't like them, but they're still true. It's what my truth is, is on the table. And so you kind of always get what you want from me or get what you see, I guess. Yeah, that's an amazing attitude to have. And I think can be dangerous. And yeah, it has not worked that for me regularly. <laughs> <laughs> I think the only other part I will mention about sort of what like leads into who I am and what I'm about is this idea that along the way, I was also considering a career in psychology. And so that's how I went down this rabbit hole. And I'm not an expert by any stretch of the imagination. But one of the two areas of psychology that were particularly fascinating to me are environmental psychology and positive psychology or the study of happiness. And both of those things deeply influence everything that I've done since, for sure. And then that's kind of me in a nutshell. <laughs> What I was going to say is that I think that could be dangerous in the wrong hands, but luckily with you, it's in the right hands. So, you know, from your journey going from the Typecast Dance Company into the world of event management, what initially drew, because you had that choice, as you said, you could go into, you know, fields of psychology and studying happiness and motivations. So what drew you into event management and how did those past experiences contribute to that choice? Well, for me, it comes down to this one moment that I find very addictive. It's like my, this is terrible to say, but it's my version of heroin, <laughs> which is there's a moment when I was producing art where, you know, you've done all the work, you've worked with the artists, you've built the thing. There's a moment where you have to open the door to the theater. And that moment is where you find out whether all your work was worth it, whether it delivered on its promise or not. And similarly, in sort of corporate event design, there's a moment where you got to open the doors and see what happens. And it's sort of this like, let go and let God moment. And there's something so invigorating about that moment to me that that's what I chase all the time. And throughout the pandemic, when I couldn't get it at all, oh, man, <laughs> that's when you realize that it's, it's kind of an addiction. It's a sort of almost desperation to share this beautiful, magical moment with other people. And like, that's what I'm chasing all the time. And that's certainly what led me down this path rather than the other. Cool. Absolutely. Like I was describing to somebody, in our jobs, we get, it's very stressful. 
Like there's time constraints and they were very concerned and saying something like, oh, you can't live on that type of stress. And I was like, no, 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 it's good. I like it. It's so bad. <laughs> and it took me a couple of days, but I finally realized I was personified. It's like a runner's high. So there's a period of time where you're doing like one meeting to the next and you've got 15 minutes. And I sometimes sit there thinking like, okay, in 15 minutes, I can get like these two things done, right? And there's a pace that happens where I'm typing super fast and I'm like, it's almost like juggling and everything. And I described this to somebody and they said, oh, that's unsustainable. You'll burn out. And I was like, no, it, it's like a runner's high. Like I get into this sort of rhythm and it just feels really, really good. And then you get to the end of the day and I can successfully go, eh, you know what, I'm done. And I turn off my computer and I go. And so I think that's kind of that heroin moment that you were just talking about. Yeah. Well, and I think for me, it's like, it's sort of a two weeks before an event and the week of an event. Like I operate on Pepsi and adrenaline. That is how I live. And then the moment it's over, the crash you experience is like nothing else. And it's wild that even though that feels awful, like you usually end up sick with like three different diseases. <laughs> it is wild that you wake up after like a week of recovery and go, yeah, let's do it again. Let's go. You know, let's talk more about your feelings and colors guy approach to doing things. So how are you translating abstract emotions into tangible elements of an event? I'll admit when I got this question, I struggled. <laughs> Because it's something that I think for me has always been, or at least I've described it as kind of intuitive. It's a thing that I just do. I don't you just wake up and do it? You know what I mean? But forcing myself to sit down and actually think about it, there are some things that I've come up with that I, I mean, in the end, I have to thank you because it was a really great exercise. It meant it forced me to think about my methodology in a way that I never really thought. So thank you for that. That is a gift. I think for me, I think a lot when I'm designing an event about how to change the way that people interact. How do they intersect with each other? And what that means to me is like, how can you create a variety of different kinds of experiences throughout your event? And that is influenced. It's a multiple intelligences theory by Gardner, which is kind of debunked at this point. So it's like faulty information, but it still has influenced me because I grew up in a time where every school was doing it what kind of what debunked about it was to say, like, you're intelligent, like you were a kinesthetic learner. They would then be like, oh, well, that's the only thing you are. And the truth is, in fact, all of us have multiple intelligences that kind of run across that spectrum. And that's kind of how I think of it is like, how can you engage at different parts of people over the course of your event? And so what that means in practical terms tends to be things like, do you have them doing something physical or tactile? Do you have them doing that sitting and learning thing that some people really love? Do you have them engaging in community with each other? And how do you change the way that community intersects? So are they sitting in like a lounge, having a conversation comfortably? Are they sitting at like a hotel square, staring across each other in flickering fluorescent light? Like what is the energy that they have? And how can we give them a variety of experiences over time? That's something that I think a lot about. Another thing I think a lot about since joining the kind of inside the corporate beast side of event planning is having to reinforce over and over again, we're just here to treat people like adults. What I've learned certainly in, in being on the corporate side of things is there is such anxiety. Like if you give people a drink, oh man, you're signing up for people to be messy. 
if you send people on an adventure, they might behave badly. And there's like that immediate fear of what can go wrong. And I choose to go the other way and say, actually, people are adults and they are professionals. So like nobody's here to jeopardize their career actively. And if they do, again, that's on them, not on me. Like, it's not like I'm going out to provide opportunities to ruin people's careers. That's not what I'm here for. But I am here to make sure they have the most interesting kind of experience. And that means trusting that they will be adults wherever they end up. And then I think the third thing, and it is just three things. I love a list of threes. I can't help myself. We got to give them something to talk about. I found myself in a lot of corporations where there's like a, the balance of extroverts to introverts is heavily swayed to the introvert side. And what I think about a lot is every conversation I've ever had with a stranger goes like this. What do you do for work? How are your kids or your pet? Awkward silence. And what I think about my work is what can I put to delay that awkward silence as long as possible? And like one of the favorite events I've ever done was an event called Bench Break at a company called Benchside, where basically over two days, it was a kind of a choose your own adventure. Everyone got to sign up for two different or three different adventures. They go out into the city to do various things like the skywalk at the CN Tower or canoe on the Honda River or go to the Museum of Illusions or whatever they signed up for. And then it culminated in this sunset boat tour <laughs> where, you know, you're trapped on a boat. You can't go anywhere, so you better, you might as well socialize. But it, everyone had something to talk about because they'd all been on these different adventures and it delayed that awkward silence. And it's my belief that if you can delay that awkward silence just enough, people will find the next thing to talk about because they'll talk about the fact they went indoor skydiving, how it was a rush and it reminds them of a thing they did. And then that starts a conversation. And that a big part of how I see my job is delaying that awkward silence. And those are my three things that I think about in terms of like being a feelings and colored sky. <laughs> Absolutely. So you sort of touched on a specific instance of this with bench side. Like, is there a specific process, tool, or methodology that when you're sitting there and being given the task by your leadership to, like, create an emotional experience in this event, where's that starting point? And describe a little bit of that process and thinking. Yeah. So, to be clear, at no point has anyone ever come to me and said, I want an emotional experience. And no one's ever asking for that. That's the thing they get whether they want it or not. <laughs> yeah. What typically happens is I will hear from whoever's event it is, like, hey, we need to get these people together and here's a very specific problem we have to solve. In that example of the bench break event, we hadn't been physically together as an organization in three years. How can we come together, build community and celebrate one another? And so that was the goal was like, we got to create connections and we got to put people in environments where they're going to meet each other. And so for me, it was, okay, what's the best way to do that? And that was this idea of creating a lot of choice, creating a sense of scarcity. So there were event, there were specific adventures that were very limited, like doing the Skywalk at CN Tower. There were only six people who could go on that adventure. And so it kind of created this moment when I sent out the like, here's the sign-up sheet. Good luck. I know that I impacted the productivity of the organization for a solid three hours that day. Like I devastated that company for a day. But it's about hearing what the stakeholders want. So for example, there's an event I did a couple of weeks ago where the goals were kind of unclear. It was like, this is a legacy event that have always done. 
we got to do it. We don't have a theme. We don't really have a reason to be there, but good luck. <laughs> and so that, that's where you really do have to say, okay, if there's no guidance or if there's something very specific, it's about like weaving those threads together to get what I need out of it, which is this like creative place that fosters connection because that's where the best events live. And how does it deliver on whatever the objective the stakeholders have? And really being good at parsing out what they need and what they want. Because you can give them some of their wants, but you have to deliver on what they need and finding what that balance is. That's really wise. I love that. You have to deliver what they need. And I'm paraphrasing it poorly. So I'm going to move on. Yeah. I mean, that's assuming they've told you. Sometimes they tell you the week before and you're like, that would have been great information six months ago. (laughs) Well, so... Through your time at Bansai and now at Perseus, are there any like specific pivotal learnings from that journey that significantly have changed or are informing your current approach? Actually, I have a really big learning that I'm kind of still in the middle of processing. So forgive me if I'm kind of like rambling and nonsensy about it. But <laughs> so my role when I was at Bansai. I was hired to come in and do like big spectacle events to impress pharmaceutical companies. That was the goal, you know, something easy, something light. And then COVID came and it was like, oh, now your job is not that. Your job is to figure out how to make culture and community in a purely digital environment. And, you know, that was a lot of like winging it, guesses, wild swings. And I kind of was accidentally, in my opinion, successful. I do think there was a lot of work that went into it. And, but I, think more often than not, it's kind of luck. So my focus now is tends to be much more on the culture building side of things than just like purely event planning. And so my perspective has to change with that. Because it's not just how do I get this event to exist? It's how do I get this event to exist? And how does it impact the long term culture community building that I'm working on at this place and in this space with these people? And that side of the work, the culture stuff, it's nebulous. And it's so challenging because we just live in a world where lots of folks exist in senior leadership positions that don't believe that it has an impact, that it doesn't have a value because it, there's no direct correlation that they can see between good company culture and profitability. In fact, from the science, we know that those are inextricably linked and the impact can be up to 50%. If you have a terrible corporate culture, you are impacting your profit. That is a fact. But a goofball like me, it's hard to explain that to a CEO of a multinational corporation. (laughs) And so I am getting to your point here, I promise. What happens when you're in that cultural space, for me at least, because I'm kind of, I view myself as this truth teller, is I tend to be the person who's like, this is what I'm picking up from the community at large. And I feel I have to advocate on their behalf at the senior leadership level because nobody else is saying these things. And that sets you up to be in direct conflict with the CEOs of the world. And when I joined Perseus, there was a moment when I first got here where I met with the CEO and we had a conversation about community culture building, everything that I thought I was here to do. And the response was, and I'm very much paraphrasing this, it was sort of like, we don't have a culture, don't want to have a culture, and we'll never have a culture, and I don't really understand why you have a job here. (laughs) That was kind of the vibe I took away from that. And so you kind of go like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. 
And what ended up happening at this event we had a few weeks ago is that very same guys got on stage on the first night. And if I had a to-do list of all the things I wish this man could do, he hit all of them out of the park. He was talking about our core beliefs and our values. He was making it emotional. He was vulnerable. He was personal across the course of the week. He made time for every single person. And it was just like, that guy didn't make sense with the person I had met many months ago. And in the intervening time, you know, there were, I'm sure I can't take all the credit for it. And I would never do that. But I choose to believe that that conversation I had with him about community and culture building led him on a path that started him asking questions. I know he went to other events where they talk about these things and they frame their events in the exact same way. And I think all of that led him to this moment where he just showed up and crushed it. And that is the lesson, playing it all the way around, for me is this sense of patience. It's this ability to know that my presence has influence, even when I'm in meetings where I'm deeply frustrated because I'm not getting the answer I want. I know that by advocating and being that person who shows up and asks these big questions and pushes people to think in a humanistic way, that there is change that results of that because those questions get repeated in meetings I'm not in. So that's a very long-winded roundabout way to say like, what have I learned? That's the thing I've learned quite recently. It's like, be patient because the more you advocate, the more change you'll see over time. We have to have the long view. Yeah, that's amazing. And, you know, I love how you have you touched on that that cultural element, because in especially B2B events, and I'll go on to this subject a little later, but we're constantly being told about the value or told to find the data that supports the value we create or the ROI or whatever it might be. And so it's interesting to see that documented shift a in your leadership to get onto the, sort of the culture wagon which is a little bit as you said nebulous and hard to define but when we get to it I'd love to talk about how we can quantify that a little bit better and show those results but before we get onto that I just want to talk about your sense of storytelling and how you weave a coherent and compelling narrative into an event to get specific emotions and reactions from an audience so tell me about how you create that story and what you're thinking in that process. There's another question that when I read it, I was like, ooh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know I thought about it. I've, I've landed somewhere. I think for me, how you build that narrative, like, so it has to come from the stakeholders. Like, it starts at that needs versus wants place, understanding those. Because, like, the way I view it is, and I tend to work on events where there's like too many stakeholders. And the thing about event planning too is like everyone thinks they can do it and everyone thinks they're an expert. So it's like you have to be able to navigate those egos a little bit and be like, wow, that is a great idea, Tammy. I will take that and do it a little bit, but don't get crazy, you know? So some of it's that. Some of it is having this understanding of all of those demands and starting to sort of figure out how you're going to weave those things together because that's what starts revealing what your narrative can be. And then when you're on site, I think the most powerful tool ultimately is like you have to have a narrator for your event. You have to have someone whose job it is to sort of find where the people's energy is and just ratchet it up or ratchet it down or recover it when it needs to be recovered. And I've seen this done lots of ways. I think it's something that I kind of tend to jump into just because I have that particular magic power. 
Um, I don't have a problem with looking like an idiot in front of 300 people. Like I'm, that's fine. Uh, if it makes you laugh and it makes you like recovers your energy to see like me be an idiot. Cool. No problem. You know, like at this event, we had a cowbell to signal like end of session, move on to the next one. So like me with a cowbell wandering around a hotel conference floor. It's like, was that down? Yes, it's very down. But it's just like a change of energy in it. It makes a difference. And so focusing in on this narrator thing, it's like when you're introducing people, having that one person who is comfortable trying out jokes, is comfortable trying to like find the energy and pull it somewhere different, that's really, really important. And it doesn't have to be you. But who you have in that role needs to understand the point of the event, what we're trying to go for, and have sort of an understanding of the people in the room. I've seen it done where you get like a facilitator who's like some guy, doesn't know anything. It just never feels quite right because they don't understand the people in the room. And so I think it's important if if you can, it's got to be someone from that population so that there's an immediate connection that takes less work to make. We just did an interview with Liz Lathan over at the CMO group. She used to be the head of marketing for hot companies. And we were talking about community and how that genuineness needs to come into your community building. And I, and I think you're touching on the exact same point, that genuine understanding of the audience and that being part of that community is vitally important. So good on you there. I think of it as authenticity, because that for me is... The secret to my success is like, I am authentically who I am, whether you like it or not. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. So how are you balancing those corporate objectives with those human-centric activities? I mean, we touched on it a little bit about that ROI and that value creation. And so can you discuss any challenges you've encountered with aligning those objectives and how you've navigated them? I mean, ultimately, like, when is another challenge, I guess, is like, has there been a time where it hasn't been? I can't think of one. I think for me, it's this idea that kind of what I've already said, which is when those challenges appear, it tends to be this sort of, it shows up as friction or conflict with the senior leadership team. Because, you know, I'll use a Perseus example. One of my senior leaders, when I first got here and was talking about what I do and what I hope to achieve and, you know, the ways I go about doing that, she replied by saying, oh, wow, you're a really fluffy person. And I was like, oof, I'm going to take that as a compliment, but I don't know that it was. (laughs) And I think in corporate environments, one of the things that I have had to sort of realize about myself, which I think comes from my history in the arts, is I used to be in the arts, I was the person with the spreadsheet being like, no, 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 artistic person. You can't do that. You have a budget of $8,000. We can't build you a theater. That's not a reality. I was the, the pushback guy. In this environment, I'm the artist. I am the big idea person. And I'm trying to herd a bunch of spreadsheet cats. And that's been really sort of significant to me is like, Changing how I view myself as this artist means that I can communicate in that way and feel comfortable when someone calls me fluffy because of course I am. And don't you wish you were fluffy too? And it is because there is, there's lots of meetings I've been in where we're talking about these things and there's just so many people who will put their hand up and be like, I don't know why we'd spend money on that. 
there's no pushback. I, I can't make the economic argument because I don't have visibility into the finances. I can't necessarily see the changes that I want to impact and how they actually result. Like I, I will never understand that, that view because I just don't have access to those things. So it has to come from this place of like, I know that this is fundamentally right because this is how humans experience reality. And if you other people in this room have a different version of reality, that's so cool. But I'm going to keep showing you how I live and I'm going to sh keep showing you what I care about. And the longer I do that, the more behavior modeling I engage in, the more changes I start to see. And it really is about having this sort of long-term view of it. It's saying that I might not move the needle in this meeting, but I will move the ne needle in six months. And like, it's been very thrilling to see how quickly that happened. As I mentioned in my CEO story, like you saw it happen. And I'm starting to see it happen with other people that were in similar rooms with me. And again, it's just like, I can't win every battle, but I can win the war just by showing up and being who I am. That's brilliant. I certainly want to touch on that long-term view because I think, you know, we as event professionals are always judged on very nervous, as you put it, spreadsheet people who are like- Spreadsheet cat, yeah. <laughs> we spent, you know, X amount of money on this thing. We all went down to Vegas. We did this thing. And, you know, it's a week later. Why don't we have any results? And, you know, one of the challenges of event professionals, even if it is hard sales metrics and numbers- is saying, yeah, but you're not going to see that. You're not going to see it for six months. And there is an art to communicating and assuring leadership, stakeholders, whoever it might be, that you will see the results. It's just not tomorrow. And so segues into my next question. How are then you measuring that success of the event in terms of engagement and empowerment like are there particular metrics or feedback mechanisms that you are looking at and understanding that you may not see these right now but what is the thing you're looking for six months down the road i'm sort of fortunate now in these sort of cultural roles that i have way more access than ever before to like the employee engagement survey information which is a huge tool for me because it tells me what we're missing more than anything else like I do the classics, I do like the post event survey, we do two or three months follow up to be like, hey, what did you learn that you might still be using? Is there any sort of, we haven't done that for our most recent one, but that is on the sort of path. Those are the, I'm a huge qualitative person. I, again, colors and feelings. I don't care about your pivot table. I really don't. <laughs> it's like, what I want is what did you write down? I'm like, what did you feel that you needed to tell me? That is what I, look at and i take all of it with a grain of salt with that kind of feedback you have to recognize like this is one person's opinion and take that for what it will but that's really where i kind of go in and it, i think of myself in those moments as kind of a synthesizer similar to when you're trying to build that framework from your stakeholders of like what is this event actually about and the needs versus wants that kind of thing when i start digging into the feedback I'm looking to build a similar kind of lattice or tapestry from that to give me a sense of what really worked, what did people respond to, what are people not responding to, and how can I then use that information to evolve moving forward and think of them really and those results as another stakeholder for when we come back to that starting point again. And that's kind of how I think about it. As mentioned, I'm not really a metrics guy. <laughs> 
I'm terrible at it. Yeah. I really like the idea of personifying the post-event data and what that story is telling you as another stakeholder. That's brilliant. And so let's just shift over to digital for a minute. And so, you know, post-pandemic, you know, a lot of event content is now being pushed over into virtual and hybrid platforms. And so can you maintain an essence of connection and emotional resonance in virtual and hybrid event settings? Tough question. (laughs) I've seen it work. It is possible. I have done it myself. I think what is underestimated is the effort required to make a digital space create connections in that way. The amount of personal vulnerability that's required, the amount of personal relationship building required to create digital spaces that actually tie people together is enormous. And that for me is, and to be quite clear on what I mean by that, when I was at Benchside during the pandemic, that's what I became. I became sort of like a company mascot, literally everyone's sort of therapist at one point. Like it was a mad time. It worked, but it ruined. Like I was shattered when I left that organization because I had given so much of myself in order to make it work. And I think there's sort of an inherent, for folks who aren't invested in making it work, there's this inherent sense of anonymity when, with a digital space that makes it easier to be like, yeah, I don't need to share myself. I don't need to connect. I will show up and pay attention, maybe. And that's what I'll give you. So for me, that's the sort of challenge of the digital space. I think on the hybrid sort of things, I love the digital tools. I love that it makes it easier to communicate with people. I love that it makes it easier to update mistakes. You know, they happen. (laughs) And that ability to communicate with human beings instantly in that way, for me, has changed the game. What I don't like about it, like, and I'm talking about your like your event apps and that kind of stuff, is that it all your phone is also your window into reality. And the spaces and worlds that I'm trying to create in the events I produce is I want you to walk in and forget. I want you to be so present in this connection building space and this community building space that you are not looking at your email. I want you to be here. And the problem with some of those tools is like, you're looking at your phone and you're immediately like, oh, I've got 35 email notifications, some Instagram posts, and my kid's done something weird on TikTok. So you're immediately leaving that environment that I've tried to curate very carefully. There's a tension in those sorts of tools for me that they are both like a blessing and a curse. And it's navigating those. That's really interesting. You know, the, the, I was having a discussion with somebody the other day about, you know, every sales meeting and in the event design, we tend to put high cruiser tables or, or whatever it is and a bunch of stools at the back of the room because we know the sales guys, no matter what they're doing, are going to get up and take a call from their client because they have to. They can't help it. (laughs) And you can imagine how much that blows up in a virtual or digital world where, yeah, I mean, they're technically signed into the browser, but we're pretty sure he's on the phone with like six clients right now. So like right now I had to close my email and my teams because I know the addiction is so real that even while trying to be as pleasant as I can for this. I would be able to be like, oh man, my boss wants this. You know what I mean? Like, exactly. No, I get it's it. real. Yeah. Great. So just wrapping up with a couple of little questions. First of all, in your opinion, what's the best event you've ever been to and why? 
Well, I am a Libra and it is Libra season. So I have three answers because I can't make a choice. <laughs> Hit or miss on whether they count as events or not. But, you know, we're here, we're doing it night shopping. So the first one I'll say is I was doing a scouting trip in Boston in 2019. And those for me, like it's so much walking and like wandering, like I was shattered. But there was a sort of festival called Illuminus there that was kind of at like projection mapping on city streets in the financial district. And I forced myself to go and I'm so glad I did because it was so special to see this like technology that I think is really cool. And I've seen you so well at events, but just like kind of democratized and on the street for people to wander by and check out. And it was fascinating to watch as people were walking by and they'd see these art exhibits to watch them stop and just be present and have that conversation with their partner. And, and really, there's just something magical about when something technological like that stops people in their tracks. And I love that. I think that was really cool. And it was just so easy to navigate and, and kind of traverse. This is the one that is not really an event, but has been formative to me. And that is the Lion King on Broadway, <laughs> which to me, I think of it as like, that was so formative for me because it was the first time I saw spectacle used to create magic. And that has been so, like, I'm the big idea. I want people to be transported when they go to an event to find. My budgets don't always allow for that, but that's a fancy. And there was just something about that particular show that was like, it is all spectacle from start to finish. It is a spectacle. And yet there's people crying. There's people laughing. There's this like, communal energy that that show creates that's so special and that's kind of i think maybe that was my first dose of heroin <laughs> and then the last one i'll say which is an actual event here in toronto there's a sort of giant complex and harborfront center and they have a, an artistic season called world stage and at one point in a part of my life we didn't really talk about unrelevant or not relevant, but like I was an artist programmed in that season and they did this preseason event at the, it used to be called the Hummingbird Center. Now it's, I don't remember what it's called. It's a big theater in Toronto across from the Hockey Hall of Fame. Meridian Center. That's right. Meridian? Mer and whatever. So they had us kind of corral in the lobby, which is really a cute little simple cocktail. wasn't anything special. Then there was a moment where like the music changed and they made us walk through the aisles of the, the audience and then up through the backstage onto the stage where they had the fire curtain down. So it was this enclosed, beautiful space. And they had all the curtains drawn out. So you could see like the inner workings of how theater happens. And above us were these hanging, beautiful, custom, like glass bubbles, like bubbles from a bubble machine, but like made of glass and varying sizes. And they just like reflected the light so beautifully. And then there was a moment about an hour into that, that they opened the fire door so you could look from the stage out into the audience. And it was just kind of a really special experience for me because that was around the time that I had left the arts. I was entering this sort of corporate phase of my life. There's a little energy of like, I'm a sellout being in a room filled with artists, you know, like it was some of that energy. But it was kind of like this moment for me that kind of crystallized that. All of this stuff that I had learned in the arts was completely relevant to what I was going to be doing from here on in. Because any space can become a venue and people love seeing the inner workings of things. And so it was just kind of this beautiful, magical moment and this special event to me that sort of lived on 
forever in me. What I didn't mention is I was also at the time wearing a nonsense kind of wig, a beret, and ponyhose over my face. <laughs> That's sort of a whole other story, but that was part of the experience too. <laughs> so we always like to wrap up these episodes with giving our listeners, event professionals out there, like a practical thing that they can do to add, as you said, more emotion and more color to their events be a little bit more emotionally centric in their design. So what advice would you give to an event professional that they can do like tomorrow to start themselves on that journey? Oh man, good question. I think if you didn't know about emotions whatsoever and you were like, how do I do this? How do I manipulate these people to feel away? <laughs> I would say start with thinking about going all the way back to the beginning, which is like change the way people relate to one another. So if your event is consistently, you know, at the hotel square with a flickering light, what can you change about that? Can you put those people in a lounge instead? Can you make them go for a walk in the woods instead? How can you change the way they're forced to engage with each other? Because that's the first step to sort of manipulating, which is a hard word, but it's true, manipulating how the emotions in that room change. That's where I would start. Excellent. And so where can people find you? I am findable on LinkedIn. That's the main place. I am on Instagram. If you want to see me be inappropriate, it's at Mother Trouble. I also, there's lots of dregs of me on the internet in various horrifying detail. Those are the two I'll give you. Those are the two I'll give you. Oh, okay. Okay. Not the deep web <laughs> stuff. All right. Fantastic. That's right. <laughs> Matt, thank you very much for joining me today on the Production Value Matters podcast. And it was really great uh, catching up and having a conversation with you. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Production Value Matters, the business event podcast is brought to you by Burn Production Services. To find out more about Burn Production Services and how putting on events can drive value for your business, visit burnproductionservices.com. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And on behalf of the team here at Production Value Matters, thank you so much for listening.